you. Hi, my name is Christina Elder, and I'm a senior attorney at Shin and Curtis uh, in Boston. I've been practicing immigration law for about six years, and I'm happy to be with you today. Hi, everyone. My name is Nikki Matrician. Um, I am also at Chen and Curtis. I am a partner there, and Christina and I work very closely together. Um, I have been at Chen and Curtis since 2011, and we handle primarily employment-based immigration. Um, we also do family-based and naturalization cases as well. Um, and I am very happy to be here with you today. So. Before we turn to our slides, I wanted to quickly go over um, the reference materials. So uh, you may have already received the glossary of US immigration terms, which is a PDF document that I believe the BBA coordinators have disseminated. Um, so that's a good starting point for you. And also what I wanted to address what resource materials attorneys practice immigration law uh, really need to have at their fingertips. Um, obviously, the Immigration and Nationality Act and regulations um, that are comprised by the 8 CFR on uh, aliens and nationality, 20 CFR on employee benefits, and 22 CFR on foreign relations. Also, it's critical to reference the USCIS's adjudicator's field manual for anything that's related to USCIS filings, and for consulates, the foreign affairs manual. In addition, we frequently refer to USCIS-issued memos for guidance, and then for PERM, green card cases that we will go over um, the Department of Labor's FAQs. So with that as the jumping off point, I'll turn it over to Christina. Thank you, Nikki. Um, so I'd like to start by talking about um, a variety of the most common types of non-immigrant visas that we see, meaning um, temporary visas to um, work in the US for a limited period of time. And um, these visa processes can involve um, a few different uh, government agencies, the US Citizenship and Immigration Service, the State Department, and also the Department of Labor. Um, you should have received a glossary of terms that you can refer to um, if you are wondering about any of the technical terms that we're discussing. Um, though again, this is just a, um, this is just a, selection of the most common uh, terms that we do see. So there are a few different ways that someone might end up um, working on a non-immigrant visa in the US. Someone may choose to come to the US on a student visa or um, a company may petition for them before, at some other point on another basis. Um, it's very common that someone might come to the U.S. as an international student, graduate, start working for an employer in the U.S., and go on a tra trajectory to get a more long-term non-immigrant visa and then possibly eventually an employment-sponsored green card process. Um, international students may qualify for a variety of types of work authorization. Um, curricular practical training may be available for someone while they're in school. 
And it's typically a short-term work authorization um, for an internship or work study opportunity. It has to be related to the student's course of study. And it primarily involves um, receiving authorization from the school itself in the form of a Form I-20 that authorizes the period of time for the curricular practical training. So um, while we as attorneys might not be involved in this CPT process, um, we certainly will see people who've had CPT or are going to have CPT while we're working on other types of related processes. Then after someone graduates, they may qualify for optional practical training or OPT. This also must be related to the course of study and recommended by the university on that same form I-20. Um, but it's a little different in that once the school issues the I-20, the student still needs to apply for a work authorization card, an EAD um, document from USCIS, and they have to have a valid card in order to begin working. OPT is generally available for 12 months, but if someone is a STEM graduate in a science, technology, engineering, or mathematics field, they may be eligible for a 24-month extension of that OPT for a total of three years. Um, and as with regular op optional practical training, this does require that the work be related to the degree program, but it is more complex of a process in that um, the employee must prepare a training plan and um, work with their manager to get the university to approve that training plan. Um, it's a plan that they are expected to stick to. It would include their goals and um, how they're going to be um, evaluated by their employer. And then they're required to report um, periodically to their university um, in relation to that plan. Additionally, an employer who hires somebody in STEM LPT is required to meet actual wage requirements, meaning that they are going to pay the uh, foreign national at least as much as US workers in the same or similar role. And also they are required to um, sign up for the E-Verify system the Department of Homeland Security has um, to track work authorization of um, foreign national employees. So moving on to uh, other types of uh, visa processes, we can look at the H-1B and other specialty occupation types of visas. This is something that someone who's in F-1 status may transition into once they've been working for an employer for some period of time, or an employer may choose to sponsor someone from outside of the US. Um, it really varies, um, but a very common trajectory is to see someone move from F1 OPT status to H1B, and then if the employer-employee relationship works out well, the employer might choose to sponsor them for a green card as well. There are three different types of specialty occupation um, visas. The H1B is the most common. All three of these types of visas require that the role be a specialty occupation that the employee is going to work in, meaning it requires at least a bachelor's degree in a particular field of study. Um, the H-1B is available in three-year increments, whereas um, the H-1B1 and E3 are in one- and two-year increments. And the H-1B is available to someone from, from any country, whereas the H-1B1 um, and the E3, due to treaties that we have with those countries, are available to Chilean, Singaporean, and Australian uh, citizens only. What the, in addition to specialty occupation requirements, um, these three visa categories hold in common is that they all require that the employer pay the prevailing wage to the employee, meaning 
that based on geographical location and the occupational category, um, that the wage for the foreign national worker is going to be equivalent to the prevailing wage for US workers in that role. And in order to show that the employer is sticking to those requirements, the employer is required to file a labor condition application for any of these three types of visas with the Department of Labor before submitting a visa petition to either USCIS or the State Department. Um, there is another, some variance between these categories though in that the um, H-1B is special in that once a green card case has reached a certain point, um, at least uh, one year before the total six-year visa max period allotted to an H-1B uh, non-immigrant employee, that person may be able to extend their H-1B indefinitely um, based on that green card case. The other two categories don't qualify for this type of extension, um, known as an AC-21 extension, and the other two categories don't present the clear allowance to have what's called immigrant intent, meaning that the visa holder can intend both to work in the U.S. temporarily, but also to, to intend to eventually stay permanently as a lawful permanent resident with a green card. Um, we can move on to the next. Thank you. So there are a number of other types of employment-based non-immigrant visas. These are just a selection of some others that we see frequently. Um, the L1 is available for people who are moving between entities. Um, if an, a U.S. employer has a related entity in uh, a country outside the U.S., they can bring someone either as a manager in an L1A visa application or a specialized knowledge worker, that's the L1B category, to the U.S. Um, to work temporarily. And um, the, these types of uh, applications can be filed with USCIS or in certain circumstances with uh, consulates abroad, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Additionally, um, a pretty common type of visa that um, we may see are TN visas. These are available only to Canadian and Mexican citizens because they are part of the NAFTA trade agreement. And um, they're not exactly the same as the specialty occupation categories in that the, they're limited to a specific clearly delineated group of occupations that's specifically established in NAFTA. Um, they're also available in three-year increments like an H-1B though, but they can be renewed indefinitely um, rather than capped at six years. On the other hand, an individual who has a TN visa must present or exhibit the intent to return to their home country at the end of their work in the U.S. Um, and TN visas can be applied for with USCIS at a consulate or in the case of um, Canadians at the border in some cases. Um, and then another type of uh, non-immigrant visa that we see, um, but it is more rare because it is more difficult to qualify for is the O-1. That's for someone who exhibits extraordinary ability in their field, uh, meaning that they are one of a small percentage of people who's at the very top of the field this can be shown by meeting at least three of uh, 10 potential uh, categories. And the clearest way to meet this requirement is by having won an internationally recognized award. But if you can show that you have original, made original contributions to the field, such as in a patent, or um, have published very significant work, you may also be able to qualify 
uh, for an O1. The O1 is initially granted for up to three years and can be renewed indefinitely in one-year increments. All of the um, visa categories that I've spoken about do require that an employer act as a petitioner um, supporting the case. We can move on to the next slide. So getting into a little bit more depth about the H-1B category. Um, the H-1B is unusual in that um, rather than the employer just filing a petition and getting a result, the H-1Bs are generally subject to a lottery system. And this is because they're capped at 85,000 uh, H-1Bs released per year. 65,000 are part of the regular pool, and then there are another 20,000 visas available for people who have US masters or higher degrees. Um, the lottery occurs each year in April um, for people to begin work the following October. And um, in recent years, we've seen about 200,000 people enter the lottery. Um, so the odds have recently been maybe a, a quarter to a third of people will receive um, a visa number. However, once you enter, enter the lottery, USCIS still needs to um, make a decision about your application. So that's really just the first step in the process. Um, the individual will be notified that they've been chosen in the lottery, um, but USCIS still needs to actually adjudicate the merits of the petition at that point. Um, an individual who has an H-1B is counted against the cap only once. Um, so someone who's moving to a new employer or who's extending their H-1B is usually not subject to the numerical limit a second time. However, there are some types of H-1Bs that are exempt from this cap and are not part of the lottery system. If, for example, the petitioning employer is a um, nonprofit organization or a research or university institution, they may be able to petition for someone to have an H-1B outside of this lottery system. And that person is not counted against the cap, doesn't have to enter the lottery, and can also be sponsored at any time during the year. However, if someone gets a position at a CAP-exempt institution as an H-1B employee, say they work as a researcher at Harvard University and then they want to move to a for-profit corporation, they would be subject to the CAP at that point. We can move on. So getting a little bit more in depth about L1 uh, intercompany visas. Um, these, as I said, are used to transfer employees from non-U.S. offices to the U.S. There are two different categories. The L1A is available to someone who's a manager or executive, and the L1B is available to a specialized knowledge worker. Unlike the H-1B, there's no annual quota, there's no lottery. However, um, the L1 cannot be extended beyond the visa max. Um, earlier, we talked about how someone who has an H-1B and is going through the green card process may be able to continue to extend their H-1B beyond the initial six-year visa max. But that um, is not available to L1s. Um, both the H-1B and the L-1 do allow for immigrant intent to stay in the U.S. on a more permanent basis and go through the green card process, but the timing with L-1s 
is um, significant in that uh, a green card process would need to be started in order to avoid hitting the visa max and having a gap in employment authorization um, while the green card process is ongoing. In order to qualify for an L1A, um, you would need to demonstrate a few different things. One, that the two companies, the US entity and the foreign entity are related, uh, meaning that they, one, one is a subsidiary of the other or they're affiliated and that they have uh, primarily the same owners. Um, the individual, the beneficiary needs to have worked for the foreign entity for at least one out of the past three years. And as I said, they need to be coming to the US to work in either a managerial role um, or a specialized knowledge role. In terms of what is a managerial role, this doesn't necessarily mean that the person needs to be a CEO or manage you know, 100 employees. It could be that they manage some essential function or division of the organization in order to qualify for an L1A. Um, generally, L1s, L1 petitions would be filed with USCIS, um, and any employer could file an L1 that way. However, however some employers can qualify to um, obtain a blanket approval with USCIS, meaning that they can bring uh, as many workers as, as they want to who qualify for the L1 to the US uh, simply through a more brief um, process directly at the consulate once they've gotten that blanket approval for the employer. And I can talk a little bit more about that uh, in the next slide. So the blanket L provides um, employers with uh, an easier way to bring many employees to the US um, as L intercompany transferees. And instead of going through a, a petition with USCIS each time, um, the individual would apply directly um, at a consulate for a visa uh, following an interview. Um, whereas with the L1 petition, the company would need to first file a petition with USCIS, um, get a decision, and then the individual would need to go to a consulate to apply for a visa. One of the reasons that this difference um, can be very important is that in recent years, especially in the L1B category, we've seen an uptick in requests for evidence, meaning that after you file the, the petition, instead of receiving a decision, USCIS will issue a request for more proof that the individual qualifies for the L1B or that the corporations um, involved are related entities. Um, and we haven't seen this same issue um, or the same level of scrutiny at the consulate as at USCIS. Um, RFEs really are up across the board. They're very common now among H-1B specialty occupation petitions as well. Um, so we're always looking for ways to try to avoid an RFE and um, save some time and save your client a little bit of money um, if possible. That said, there are some consular posts where adjudication of L1s um, can be riskier, especially in Chennai and India. Um, we can move on from there. And um, so my colleague Mickey is going to talk a little bit more about the employment-based permanent resident process. Um, many people, once they come to the U.S. on a non-immigrant visa, um, either their goal is to stay in the U.S. permanently or they 
become attached in some way to their job or to living here. And so um, frequently a path would involve moving from a non-immigrant visa to a green card. Great, thank you so much, Christina, for that overview of the non-immigrant options. Um, so switching gears to the green card process. So this slide depicts sort of the default process for green cards. So primarily as a default, um, people will go through this three-part process. And it starts with the PERM labor certification. Uh, PERM stands for Program for Electronic Review Management. We use PERM and labor certification sort of interchangeably um, in the immigration world. And the second step, as you can see, is the I-140 immigrant visa petition that is filed with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And then the third and final step is the I-485 adjustment of status uh, through USCIS or a consular processing application through the Department of State through the consulate. So I'll go, I'll, I will go over each of those in further detail. So for the PERM, the idea is that the US government views the foreign national worker as holding the position only temporarily. And in order for them to be eligible for indefinite uh, employment in the United States, the employer has to first test the labor market. And the test of the labor market is for the specific sponsored position and for the specific work location. Um, and what does it mean to test the labor market the employer has to place real ads in specified venues um, under the regulations, including the state job bank, um, newspaper ads, sun Sunday print newspaper ads, um, and other venues like um, internet search engines or um, the company's external website. And when the employer, so the PERM is sort of a front-loaded process and it takes about anywhere between six and nine months to be able to file the application with the Department of Labor. Um, and the employer is required to review the applicant, uh, each applicant that responds to the PERM ads. And the standard for review is minimal qualification. And foreign nationals do not need to be considered as part of this um, candidate evaluation process, uh, but any U.S. worker who minimally qualifies can derail this PERM process. Uh, by derail, what does that mean? It means that the PERM recruitment must be stopped and the application cannot be filed and so the employer is not prohibited from doing a new recruitment campaign. In fact, a lot of employers do wait a few months. Hopefully that person who qualified before has left the labor market because they moved or they found another job and took themselves out of the running. Um, and they can resume recruitment in hope. And then if there is no qualified US worker at that point, then they can file that application. 
Um, when the employer files the Form 9089, the actual PERM application with the Department of Labor, the employer is making an attestation based upon penalty of perjury that the employer's minimum requirements as included in the green card case is actually minimum to the role and that the requirements were not tailored to the foreign national being sponsored and that it did evaluate all of the candidates and there was no minimally qualified U.S. worker. So that's the PERM. Um, when you practice um, in this area of immigration law, it's critical that you um, review the Department of Labor's FAQs website. And that is something that you pretty much need to read um, every single one of the FAQ sessions and just kind of commit them to memory because there's so many nuances to the PERM rules. Um, it can get very complicated and it's easy to kind of lose track of the rules. So that's something you should uh, print out or save and have um, when you're practicing PERM. The next phase is the I-140 immigrant visa petition. And this is also like the first step, it's employer driven. And what we try to prove at the I-140 stage is two main things. Number one, that the company has the ability to pay the proffered wage that was the basis of the PERM labor certification. It's based upon the prevailing wage that the Department of Labor issued as part of the PERM. Um, and the ability to pay is something that you establish through submitting the company's uh, financial documents like taxes, uh, federal taxes, audited financials, or if it's a publicly traded company, um, SEC's Form 10-K. Um, there's a USCIS memo on ability to pay from 2004 when you get to that phase. And these USCIS memos you can usually find on, uh, I just simply Google the um, main terms, like you know USCIS ability to pay memo, um, but all of the legal resources are also housed on USCIS.gov. The second thing, going back to the I-140, um, what we try to show is how the foreign national meets the requirements. So as part of the first step of the PERM labor certification, you will have obtained documentation to show that the foreign national meets all of the requirements contained in the PERM as. And at the I-140 phase is where we submit evidence of that. So educational documents, the diploma, or maybe the educational uh, equivalency documentation, um, and letters from previous employers that established that the foreign national had the requirements and documented that uh, prior to you know, joining the company. And then the final step is the final green card application. Um, and as I alluded to, there are two main paths. The most common that you will see most likely is the I-485 adjustment of status. Um, it's most common to us because uh, it requires that the individual be physically in the United States when filing that application. And primarily we see people who are on non-immigrant visas and working for the company until they're eligible to file the I-485. 
The benefit of the I-485 Adjustment of Status, we also call it AOS, is that with that application, we would file um, applications for employment authorization documents and advanced parole, which is the travel document. Um, and those, that's usually comes in the, the form of a combined card that is renewable until you receive your green card. And um, we find that a lot of companies choose to, you know, maintain the underlying H1 or L1 non-immigrant status until the person is hired. But if for some reason uh, they do not, you know, they do not maintain the non-immigrant status or if they want to take up additional employment beyond the H or L employment, uh, they can use that employment authorization document to work for another employer. And the travel document it all is also helpful um, so that if the if there is any um, issue around uh, renewing a visa stamp when someone travels, um, then they can use the advanced parole to come back in. So the alternate route, as I mentioned, is consular processing. Um, and that is most common when the foreign national is waiting outside of the United States for a visa appointment um, and undergoing a medical exam and an interview at the consulate. And of course, uh, unless if you are consular processing, unless you have another vehicle to come into the U.S. through uh, a non-immigrant visa, you must remain outside of the U.S. while you wait for the process to complete. Um, on the right-hand side of this slide here, um, we indicate that the PERM is required only for EB2 and EB3 sponsorship. Um, and filing a case under EB1 means that you are exempt from the PERM requirement to test the labor market. That means that you can basically skip this first PERM step and go straight to the I-140. And why would we want to pursue that? Um, there are a few benefits uh, to, to uh, skipping the PERM process, um, one of them being that the ability to file the case is not dependent on the labor market condition. So frequently when the economy is doing great, there might be fewer minimally qualified applicants that would derail the green card case. But if the economy is in a downturn, there may be more qualified U.S. applicants and may uh, you know, foreclose the employer being able to file the PERM application. And remember, you, you only need one minimally qualified U.S. worker to, uh, to you know, preclude you filing the PERM application. Um, another consideration for being able to uh, skip the uh, PERM process is that the case timeline is shorter if you can step, skip the PERM. Uh, essentially, you can shave you know, about a year or more from the overall green card process by going straight to the I-140. And thirdly, um, less cost to the employer. Um, in addition to legal fees, PERM, while it does not have filing fees, you have to pay the recruitment costs, um, or rather the employer has to pay the recruitment costs. 
uh, and that can include print ads that can cost upwards of $2,000, depending on where you are. Um, for example, we have clients in California and print ads there can be over $2,000, um, maybe about 1,500 or so in the Boston area. Um, and then another reason that might weigh um, in, you know, to the consideration for trying to pursue uh, skipping the PERM process by filing an EB-1 case is that if you have an individual client that comes to you, um, the EB-1A case, which I'll talk about more detail later, um, will allow the foreign national to self-sponsor for a green card, which is helpful because they're not then tied to their employer. Um, so whether you explore that option or not might depend on, you know, who is your, how is this client coming to you? If you're representing the employer primarily, you might not want to uh, aggressively pursue the EB1A because this, you know, may be more aggressive and also allows the employee to be freed up to, um, to you know, seek other employment. So now I'll talk about um, the employment-based categories in more detail. So this slide um, depicts the most common paths for non-immigrant visa holders. Um, you can see here at the bottom that um, L1Bs and H1Bs are, and TNs are go shown as going through uh, the PERM process. Um, it's merely what we see most commonly. It doesn't mean that people in O1 or L1A status cannot go through the PERM or, you know, vice versa, that people in L1B or H1 or TN cannot pursue those upper EB1 categories. It doesn't mean that this is just a depiction of what we see most commonly. Um, and so, let's see, what does it mean to be an EB2 or EB3? Those are short for employment-based preference categories, second and third preference. Um, EB2 is for people whose sponsored position requires at least an advanced degree, so master's or PhD, or bachelor's plus five years of experience. Um, and it's really the minimum requirement for the role that drives the preference category. Um, and EB3 is for positions requiring anything less than EB2. So, uh, less than bachelor's plus five. Um, and when I say that the requirements for the position drive the classification, um, in some cases, you know, we might have someone who has a master's degree or maybe even a PhD degree, but the role that they're holding is, or the role that is being sponsored requires less than a bachelor's plus four. And so the whole case would be EB3. It really isn't driven by what the individual holds. Um, it is what the employer says is the actual minimum requirement. Um, and of course, the foreign national employee has to also meet the requirements, you know, has to show that they meet the requirements. So, you know, in the case of a bachelor's plus four requirement, for example, you have to show that, you know, the individual who has the PhD uh, has can meet those requirements through documentation. Um, so what about EB1? 
As you can see here, there are three kinds of EB1 cases. It's the EB1A, B, and C. Um, EB1A is for individuals of extraordinary ability in the sciences, arts, education, business, or athletics. Um, and as I mentioned before, this category allows for self-petition. The key is to show that the individual is at the very top, a small percentage at the very top of their field, and is internationally recognized for original contributions to the field. So it's really similar to the requirements for the O1 that Christina talked about. Um, you have to establish that the foreign national has achieved at least three of the criteria. Um, it is a higher threshold than the O1. Um, that's partly because of a court case called Matter of Kazarian. It came out around 2010. Um, that case established that adjudication of an EB1 case requires a two-pronged approach. Uh, first, established. And then second, it is to show that in the totality, the evidence establishes that the foreign national um, does merit EB1 classification because they are internationally renowned in their specific fields of endeavor. Um, and so just as an example, how would that work? Um, if your client has 10 articles published and you think you can hit that prong for authorship of scholarly articles, articles were in obscure or really little known journals, the case could fall apart because the USCIS could say, well, you have 10 articles, but, you know, that as a, in the totality of the evidence, um, doesn't recognize those journals are really, you know, obscure. And um, so that's an example of how to look at EB1 cases through the lens of Kazarian. Um, there is um, a memo, um, I think around 2010 also, explaining the uh, standard and how USCIS applies it. Um, EB1B is the second category, and it is for outstanding researchers and professors. So to qualify, your client also needs to be internationally recognized as outstanding in the field of endeavor, and um, the person must have had Uh, this category, unlike the EB1A, does require employment, uh, sorry, employer sponsorship. And for professors, it requires a job offer for a tenure or tenure track position. And for the EB1B, you have to meet two of the six criteria. And you can see the criteria listed on the USCIS website. Um, the USCIS websites are pretty good on, on uh, you know, um, showing the criteria and the standards, um, so I would reference that. EB1C is the third um, category, and it's essentially, um, you can think hard analog to the L1A. Uh, to qualify, like the L1A, you, you, the um, foreign national sponsored US role has to be managerial or executive in nature. Um, the difference, though, 
had a specialized knowledge abroad for one year or a managerial role abroad for one year. So long as the US role is managerial, you can qualify for L1A. That's not true for the EB1C. Um, for the EB1C, the role abroad must have been managerial in nature for the full one year uh, period prior to the individual coming to the United States. And it's important to remember that both the role abroad and the role in the US must separately fulfill the criteria um, for manager. And uh, like Christina mentioned, you can do, you know, it doesn't have to be a traditional manager role. You can get a case still approved for functional managers, but that's really much more aggressive these days. USCIS is scrutinizing it. Um, to be a functional manager, you have to uh, show that the individual operated at a senior level with respect to the function that they manage. The function has to be essential to the company, and so you have to be able to articulate why it's essential and show that through documentation or quantify it, um, and show that uh, the individual exercises wide latitude in discretionary decision-making. Um, there's also a memo on this um, from USCIS from 2017, uh, kind of clearly laying out what they're looking for in functional management. So once you have the I-140 in place, you can proceed, um, but only if a green card number is immediately available. Um, in the next slide, I'll explain how to look at that, um, how to determine whether a green card number is immediately available. Um, but I first want to kind of briefly touch upon what is included in the um, I-45. It's the, basically the personal application to the USCIS includes biographic information and employment history. Um, has, you, you have to go through a medical exam um, and you have to uh, not trigger any other inadmissibility grounds. Okay, so here is the slide um, on visa bulletins. So it's a monthly publication of the State Department um, you can sign up for it at the, uh, on the Department of State website, uh, so it can be emailed to you when it becomes available monthly. Essentially, there's a finite number of green card numbers available per fiscal year, and it's subdivided by preference category, as you can see. It's the EB, you know, employment-based first, second, third uh, preference, and there's also fourth and fifth that we really um, and each country gets no more than 7% of the worldwide U.S. green card numbers. Um, and some countries have uh, a lot more demand, and that creates a backlog. So you can see that for EB2 and EB3 for India, it's about 10 years behind. Uh, EB1 for India is five years behind. So how do you look at the numbers um, to determine availability? If it's denoted as a C, it means that green card numbers are immediately available. Um, there's no cutoff. If there is a date there, um, you look to the, not the country of citizenship of your client, but the country of birth. Um, and the priority date, um, as mentioned on the slide, is an important concept. It's established when you file the PERM application 
um, if you're going through that three-step process, or if the case is exempt from the PERM, then the date that the I-140 is filed establishes the priority date. So let's say that you filed the PERM application January 1st of 2020. That's your priority date for this person. And if they were from India, then you would look to, uh, if it was an EB2 case, you would see that it is June 2nd of 2009 for May. Um, and so when the date on the visa bulletin, when that June 2nd, 2009 date moves beyond January 1st, 2020 is when the client would be eligible to file their I-485. Um, and the visa bulletin does not move um, forward one month, uh, you know, when it's issued a month later. So it doesn't move in real time. Sometimes it can jump ahead, it can stay stagnant, or it can even move backwards. Um, Okay, so let's see. Oh, just a quick note about all chargeability areas. Um, that means it's sort of what we call the worldwide bucket. So if it's not listed in uh, these uh, specified countries, then you're worldwide. So if you're from Japan, for example, with a January 1st, 2020 priority date, the number is immediately available to you and you can move uh, through the process um, uh, you know, as the uh, USCIS adjudicates the I-140. Um, one quick thing to note is if the um, priority date is current, you can file the I-140 and the I-485 applications concurrently, which saves time and yields uh, temporary EAD and the travel documents um, more quickly. So now that we have the non-immigrant and immigrant overview under our belts, I'll turn it over to Christina to discuss um, some recent developments. Thanks, Mickey. So I'm guessing that people are wondering, um, given the current state of the world, how does the coronavirus pandemic impact um, this situation and these types of visas? Um, in late April, the Trump administration issued an executive order suspending the entry of foreign nationals into the US for 60 days. However, this doesn't apply to everyone. Um, the, anyone who has a non-immigrant visa, an H1 or an L1 that we talked about, is able to continue to enter the US. Um, however, if someone is going through the consular processing uh, process um, after getting an approved I-140, um, they most likely would not be able to enter the US within this period. And the 60-day period um, did leave room, the executive order did leave room for the 60-day period to be extended. So we are waiting to find out whether that happens. Um, the, this is, executive order also does not impact people who are already inside the United States. For example, someone who's going through an adjustment of status process, um, as Nikki talked about, say they're in the US working pursuant to an H-1B and going through a green card process here, this executive order does not impact them. Also exempt from the executive order are healthcare professionals, people who are entering pursuant to the EB-5 program, that's the Immigrant Investor Program, and spouses and children of US citizens. Um, I will note that the order left room for um, a potential change to the non-immigrant visa program, um, which was supposed to be reviewed within the thir first 30 days of the order. So that 30 days has now elapsed, but we have not yet heard whether there is going to be an additional executive order that impacts non-immigrant visa processes 
um, we will have to wait and see. Additionally, um, because of the worldwide pandemic, there have been impacts to um, the agencies in terms of their timelines for adjudicating cases and um, what types of services are open right now. Um, so you can actually access the expected timelines for most USCIS processes on their website. Um, however, right now, I don't know how up to date that information is given that um, USCIS has been closed for in-person interviews and other types of appointments since April 1st. They're planning on reopening next week um, on June 4th, and it's going to be a phased reopening. So they're starting just with naturalization ceremonies, and then we'll start adding other types of appointments. Um, although I would expect that they will not be as busy as, as they had in the past because they want to make sure that not too many people are in their offices at the same time. Um, plus, there is a backlog of people whose interviews were canceled in April and May and who are waiting for rescheduling. Uh, additionally, right now, USCIS is not accepting premium processing requests for any petitions. So for both um, non-immigrant visa, non visa petitions and immigrant visa petitions, I-140s, generally there is a service available um, and you can pay an extra $1,440 to get your petition expedited and adjudicated within 14 days. Um, however, those premium processing requests are not available if they become available later on and someone's petition is still in process, um, premium processing can be added to speed up the process at that point. We don't know at this point when premium processing is going to return though. And then finally, all of the US consulates around the world are closed right now for routine visa services. They're really only handling uh, urgent matters like emergencies that US citizens are experiencing abroad, um, some very urgent types of visa processes, um, but in general, they are not um, holding visa appointments, and we've seen that the visa appointments that people have been able to schedule in May and June are, have been uh, either canceled or postponed. We don't know what the date is yet um, for reopening of the consulates. Um, I would expect that they won't necessarily all be opened at once, depending on the coronavirus rates in different countries. Um, this could impact people who are already in the US as well, not just people waiting outside because Sometimes uh, people may choose to, for example, apply for an L1 renewal at a consulate. That's not available right now. They would instead have to extend with USCIS from within the US. And also um, there is the issue that if someone did travel abroad and their visa was expired, they would not be able to get a new visa stamp to re-enter the US right now because the consulates are closed. So people's travel is limited. Um, and I wanted to address the impact on immigration status through the coronavirus and the economic downturn. Um, you know, employers uh, may be looking to cut down on costs either by furloughing or reducing work hours for their employees. And I wanted to mention that, you know, those types of changes to um, terms and conditions of employment can have adverse effects on an individual's visa status. So for example, furloughing is not permitted under the H-1B, H-1B-1, or E-3 visa statuses. There is a wage obligation under the LCA, and uh, that in, you know, includes not the requirement to not bench um, individuals. 
another thing is the reduction in hours or pay could trigger a need for an amended filing with the government. Um, it's not to say that can't be done, um, but it would be that the amendment must be filed within a reasonable period um, after that change is instituted uh, to maintain compliance with the immigration laws. Um, in terms of layoffs, if that is something that needs to happen, um, employers have an obligation to withdraw an H-1B petition by writing to the government to withdraw um, upon terminating an H-1B employee. And also part of that obligation is to offer to the H-1B employee a reasonable cost for a one-way ticket to their home country. That's, within, that's in the regulation. Um, a recently new development is the um, introduction of the 60-day grace period. Uh, prior to the 2017 regulations, um, an H-1B or L-1 or TN employee uh, is who is terminated, fell out of status immediately. With this new grace period um, that's been around for the last three years, uh, people have a grace period of 60 days during which period they can seek uh, sponsorship for a new employment, for example, an H-1B transfer, or uh, file another application to change to another non-immigrant status. So that's now available, um, and that is something thing that's in clients. Um, another point here on this slide is that uh, if an employee is, uh, for example, on an H-1B and has a previously approved I-140, they can still leverage that previously approved I-140 for H-1 extensions with a new employer. So that's helpful to have. Um, and then with the PERM, there are impacts to PERM cases um, even if it is not the foreign national um, client, uh, employee who's being laid off, but let's say a U.S. worker is laid off, um, that could impact your client company's ability to file the PERM or to uh, impact, it could impact the timeline for being able to file the PERM. So I know that we're uh, now we're at the end of our prepared presentation, and I do see some questions, so I want to turn to them. Um, so I can read them off. Um, one person has asked for OPT if the expiration date of the EAD is different from the expiration date on the I-20, which one would prevail? Christina, do you want to take that? Sure. Um, so the expiration date on the EAD would prevail. Um, they sometimes vary because um, a student might get the I-20 authorized for the period of time that they're expecting to be working and then either due to USCIS adjudication times um, or delays, uh, the start date and end date of their EAD may differ from that. So you should rely on the dates on the EAD. Perfect. Thank you. Next question is, do you have to go from a non-immigrant visa, for example, H-1B, to an immigrant visa to finally file 485 to obtain a green card? Um, and I can take that. Yes, if you're an H-1B, in order to, to get the green card, unless you're going through another type of case, for example, through the uh, family-based options, um, you do have to go through the PERM or I-140 route in order to be eligible to file the I-485. 
Um, and then there is a final question here. Um, is there a grace period for CPT, OPT, and STEM OPT? You wanna go ahead, Christina? Sure. Um, so I think that there are maybe two different uh, issues to unpack here. One is that anyone who's in F1 status um, does at the end of that period have a 60 day grace period during which they could um, return to F1 status by re-enrolling in school, possibly change to another status or depart the US. Then if we're talking about the issue of unemployment, um, presumably someone who's in CPT status is still enrolled in school full-time, so they don't need to worry about um, a, an unemployment situation affecting their status. But if someone is in OPT or STEM OPT status, once they've been unemployed for a certain period of time during that period, they could fall out of F1 status. For OPT, the period is 90, any, any period adding up to 90 days within the 12 months. And for STEM OPT, it's uh, 150 days within the, 20, within the three year period. Um, so you can change employers while you're working in OPT or STEM OPT and you can have gaps in employment authorization. Um, there isn't exactly a specific grace period so much as that there are, are an aggregate number of days that you're allowed to be unemployed. Um, and also after um, the program has finished, so let's say um, someone's OPT has expired May 1st, um, they do have a 60-day grace period after that um, to switch to another uh, visa status or um, file uh, something else. I think that's all the questions that um, were listed. Does anybody else have anything else they would like to raise? Okay, well, um, thank you everyone for joining. Um, you know, immigration law is an area that has always been extremely dynamic. Um, it's not only complex, um, because simply because of the evolution of the law and um, you know, guidance, new guidance from USCIS um, and agencies coming up um, all the time, but also because there are so many nuances to the law and because so many agencies are involved. Um, but it is you know, definitely a great area of law to practice in and I hope that you have found this um, overview helpful. I think I see one more comment here. Is it possible to share the slides? Um, yes, we can. Um, so we'll send it over to the BBA um, and uh, we're happy to share and circulate. Thank you very much for attending. Thank you, everyone.